Let's get started by thanking our wonderful sponsors who make this show possible every week. We can't thank them enough. Bilink corneal cross-linking is the only FDA-approved intervention proven to slow or halt progressive keratoconus to help preserve vision. Upwards of 70% of keratoconus patients present in optometry, and thus optometrists serve a critical role in the early diagnosis and collaborative care of these patients. Please visit www.ilinkexpert.com to locate an iLink physician near you. That's www.ilinkexpert.com. With more screen usage and indoor time, myopia, also known as nearsightedness, is increasing and getting worse in children. Now, certified eye doctors can prescribe my sight one day, the first and only FDA-approved soft contact lens to slow myopia progression in age-appropriate children. Visit coopervision.com to find a Brilliant Futures certified eye doctor near you. Hello, and welcome to the Open Your Eyes podcast. I'm Dr. Kerry Guild, the host of the documentary, Open Your Eyes. Please visit the film's website at openyoureyes2020.com, featuring interviews with more than 50 optometrists from around the country sharing information on eye care and eye disease. If you're new here and you like our interviews, press like, subscribe, share, and hit the bell to get notifications of great new interviews. Also, please leave comments. Keratoconus is a vision disorder that occurs when the front part of the eye, called the cornea, becomes thin and irregular. This abnormal cone shape causes vision to be distorted. Until recently, keratoconus patients live with the unfortunate fact that nothing could be done to halt the progression of this visually debilitating disease. Today's guest, Sioux Falls, South Dakota-based optometrist, Mitch Eibach, lectures extensively on anterior segment surgical care of the eyes and keratoconus. Dr. Eibach's research includes clinical trials in the area of cataracts, cornea, glaucoma, and refractive surgery. Dr. Eibach, thank you for joining me today. Yeah, thanks, Dr. Gelb. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And it's great to talk to somebody from South Dakota. I don't get to uh, interview people from South Dakota too often. Yeah, it's a good time to be in South Dakota right now. It's the four months of uh, heaven weather right now that we have, and then it will turn here uh, in the next two months. So let me ask you, let's get into it. Can we actually slow or halt the progression of keratoconus to preserve vision? Absolutely. The game of keratoconus has really changed. If you think about just 10 years ago, keratoconus is really a disease of we're going to diagnose and then we're going to monitor and then we're going to monitor and then maybe we'll use some specialty contact lenses and we're going to continue to monitor, hoping and praying that this condition doesn't get worse. Five years ago in 2016, the game really changed with the advent of corneal collagen crosslinking being FDA approved in the US. We had this outside of the US, this drove patients into eye care providers practices so that they could stop this irreversible cause of vision loss. And I think now with crosslinking, this is becoming much more interventional disease where we wanna be more proactive for these patients. Well, let's start, before we get heavily into crosslinking and explaining it, tell us what is keratoconus? Yeah, if you think about the corneal anatomy, the cornea, the front window or windshield of the eye is usually dome shaped. It's about 550 microns thick. And with keratoconus, the cornea progressively becomes thinner, steeper, and starts to pooch or bulge forward like a cone. In the patient who has that normal spherical cornea, maybe doesn't have much astigmatism, they can see very well either without glasses or contacts 
or with glasses and contact lenses correcting their refractive error. But in a patient with keratoconus, the refraction or their eye's optical power is going to become more nearsighted. So they'll gain what we call myopia. And they'll also gain astigmatism. It starts as regular astigmatism or having two curvatures on that anterior dome or cornea. Over time, as keratoconus progresses, that cornea further warps and this patient's going to gain irregular astigmatism or astigmatism that doesn't correct well with glasses and soft contacts. And so that's kind of the disease. It most commonly starts in our late teens to early 20s, but patients can develop or be diagnosed with keratoconus really across a large spectrum of ages. Now, we often think that keratoconus, once we see patients that are in their late 30s or 40s, it doesn't progress anymore. What's the thinking about that nowadays? Yeah, I think that's the dogma. I think it's the same or similar dogma if you think a patient can't have glaucoma in their 30s. A patient with keratoconus, I think of it's progressing about 30 to 40 years, but it's different for every patient. I think eye rubbing is the number one modifiable risk factor in keratoconus, and I think it's also going to be a big cause of patients progressing longer or later into their maybe 50s or 60s. There is some data that says the cornea is one of the few spots in our body that will cross-link or strengthen itself as we get older. We just don't know that age, and I think it's really different or variable for every patient, and so I don't think it's an on-off switch that we can say, okay, patients got into their 30s or 40s or 50s, and now keratoconus is just done. It's kind of burned itself out. I don't think that is a fair assessment of the disease. The front part of the eye, the cornea, in keratoconus patients is softer. Do we know why that is the case? Yeah, corneal biomechanics is this evolving uh, way of measuring elasticity or the rigidity of a, a structure, why these patients have a more floppy cornea or a cornea that is less resistant to bending forward is most likely because of the biomechanical structure is being altered. It's probably due to collagen. Think of collagen as being highly prevalent in our corneal stroma and providing a lot of the strength. And in these patients with keratoconus, the collagen arrangement or the structure just gets altered and that's why these corneas just lose that strength to kind of resist the, the internal pressure of the eye or interocular pressure kind of pushing that cornea forward. There is an instrument now that can measure the biomechanics of the cornea. Can you review that? And how important do you think that instrument is? Yeah, there's a couple. Uh, so there's a couple technologies that do this, but really uh, ocular response analyzer and then Corvus are the two kind of most common ones. We have ocular response analyzer in our practice and it, for me, is much more beneficial in a glaucoma patient, looking at kind of scleral rigidity, which translates to the lamina cabrosa and, and more on the optic nerve. For the cornea, I take less into account what I'm getting for measurements of corneal biomechanics. But the two numbers that have kind of been proposed are corneal hysteresis. I think of corneal hysteresis as the shock absorbing properties of our patient's eye, how well can that patient absorb shock or changes in pressure? And then corneal resistance factor, which is maybe a little bit less understood, but I think of corneal resistance factor as the resistance uh, or the ability to resist change or, or kind of flex. There's not a great correlation though uh, for all of these keratoconus patients if you're thinking pre and post interventional treatment like cross-linking. You know, we talked about glaucoma for a minute before. Do you think corneal hysteresis measurements help in the diagnosis and or the treatment of glaucoma? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. I think corneal hysteresis is another piece to the puzzle, but I think it can be really helpful in a patient where you're trying to determine, is this patient a glaucoma suspect versus early glaucoma that I should be treating? Corneal hysteresis can be one of the puzzle pieces that kind of pushes me over the edge. There's good studies that have shown patients with a low corneal hysteresis are much more apt to move from glaucoma suspect to a patient with glaucoma. I also think of corneal hysteresis being impactful for patients in watching or looking for the progression of glaucoma. Patients with low corneal hysteresis have been shown to progress faster. And there's some big studies, there's some big reviews on this. And so for me, just like interocular pressure is a piece to the puzzle, just like pachymetry is a piece to the puzzle, corneal hysteresis, age, uh, family history, these are all just more ways to kind of get our patients case history or their case and make a determination of how to treat them. So what does it mean low corneal hysteresis? Is that a quick bounce back or a slow bounce back? What does that mean? Of corneal hysteresis as a an eye, but basically we're measuring it on the cornea that doesn't absorb, absorb shock well. And so maybe has a less bounce back compared to a patient that has a higher corneal hysteresis. And if we think the average corneal hysteresis in the American population is around 10.5, 10.6, anytime a patient has below 9.5, that's going to be clinically significant for me and probably change how I take care of that patient. But a cornea that just doesn't absorb shock as well. And so I try to think of it as almost shock absorbers on a car. If we have a poor shock absorber, that car is starting lower to the ground. If we add shock, there's just not as much wiggle room there. So what's the prevalence of keratoconus? Uh, we used to think it was pretty rare, but what are we finding now? Yeah, that is a very loaded question that continues to change. In the US, very commonly, we quote a study from 1986 until 35 years ago is the big study done by the National Institute of Health on keratoconus prevalence was, which was in between one in a thousand to one in 2000, probably closer to one in 2000. There's a large systematic review and meta-analysis, so worldwide keratoconus that was just published. It was published in cornea and it was about one in 750 patients have keratoconus worldwide. And then there's a study out of Australia. So now we're talking just one small piece to the world, but in this country of Australia, in this kind of area of demographic, they found keratoconus at a prevalence of one in about 84. And so really the one of the highest prevalence or incidence studies of keratoconus. And so I think it's ever changing. I think it's much uh, higher in incidence than one in 2000 and, and probably a little lower than one in, in 80 in the US. And so I think kind of the one in 500 to one in 750 patients is, is a fair uh, spot to put the marker. I think that there's some famous people now that have keratoconus that have gone public and has talked about their condition, such as, I see you have that baseball bat behind you, such as Tommy Pham mm -hmm. and of course, Steph Curry, uh, the actor Mandy Patinkin. Uh, how is having famous people behind a condition uh, important? Yeah, I think it's huge. Think of how dry eye came into the spotlight much more when Jennifer Aniston did a, a program or promo on I Love. This brought more patients' awareness on dry eye. Brandon Williams, defensive tackle for the Baltimore Ravens is another one, but Carrie, you really hit on some of the big ones. I think maybe Steph Curry is the most famous face and has been involved with some campaigns and 
this further drives awareness, which will drive a higher prevalence. And so I think that's an important correlation to make is as we have more patients who are aware of this disease, it's going to bring them into optometric practices, into eye care providers' hands so that we can get the tests and ultimately make the diagnosis. And so I think that's a correlation of higher awareness is going to lead to higher prevalence. Except her kind of talking on keratoconus, I think, has been on some of the national media, which has really helped. At the end, we're going to get into details on cross-linking, but what are the indications to catch the disease early to be able to cross-link these people to try to prevent them from at least keeping them stable or maybe even possibly getting worse? Yeah, so I think the, the first thing to do is to get the patient diagnosed, or if it's in an optometric practice where maybe all of these fancy technologies aren't available, is to be able to find the red flags for hey, this is a patient that could have keratoconus and either in my practice now, I need to do some definitive diagnostics or I need to refer that patient out so we can get baseline tests. Once we have a definitive diagnosis of keratoconus, corneal collagen crosslinking is approved by the FDA in the US for progressive keratoconus or refractive surgery ectasia. And so I'll start with refractive surgery ectasia. It's much more uncommon to have cross-linking for this. There's just not as many patients who have this condition, but in a patient who had refractive surgery, say LASIK, PRK, SMILE, radial keratotomy is a big one, although it would maybe be off-label. A patient who was doing really well and is now not doing well or has refractive surgery ectasia has already by definition progressed. And so that's been taken care of. For keratoconus. So we we say refractive surgery ectasia for the people out there that to explain. So they've had refractive surgery or some kind of surgery to try to change the prescription. And now the eye, the front of the eye, the cornea is getting thin. And we want to try to stop it from getting thin. Is is that, would that be a correct way of explaining it? Yeah, perfect. Thanks for slowing me down on that. And so I think of refractive surgery ectasia as a cornea that progressively steepens, thins, and bulges forward in a patient who previously had refractive surgery. And so maybe it was a patient who was going to develop keratoconus over time and refractive surgery kind of pushed them over the edge. Maybe it's a patient who had a, some risk factors for it. And then after refractive surgery, the cornea became biomechanically weak and started to bulge forward. Thanks for stopping me there. And Any so- Refractive surgery on somebody who has keratoconus. Yeah, can we do refractive surgery on a patient who has keratoconus? Or should we? Should we, yes. If they haven't been treated, if they haven't had their cornea strengthened, then I would say we need to hold and we need to pause on doing refractive surgery on a patient with keratoconus. Now, the definition of refractive surgery, of course, can be really broad. And so we have tools that can take care of these patients and treat them really well from a surgical standpoint. But just specifically saying LASIK or PRK, small incision, lenticule extraction, or smile, can we do that on a patient with keratoconus? For me, in our practice, we would want that cornea to be strengthened or stabilized first. And maybe then down the road, we come back for refractive surgery. Now let's look at keratoconus as a progressive disease and let's break it up into age groups. Under 20, maybe between 20 and 40 or 50, uh, over 50. If they're under 20, what's the chances of them progressing? If they're in the middle, what's the chances? And if they're a little bit older, what's, what's the odds of them progressing? Yeah, great question. There's such keys in defining progressive keratoconus, of course, because that's on label for doing corneal cross-linking. 
And so for me, if you're seeing a patient back in your practice who has definite progression, well, then it's an easy decision. But oftentimes we're seeing these patients and making the initial diagnosis. And so then we have to decide what's their risk of progression. And for me, it's three things. I want to know their age. Young aged patients are going to progress faster. There's large studies that have shown that the risk of progression goes down as a patient goes up. Now that doesn't mean that there's zero risk of progression once we get to certain ages, but it does mean that a 15 year old or a 25 year old is going to progress faster in most cases than a 55 year old. Second, I wanna know their eye rubbing status. So I wanna know, does this patient rub touch press on their eyes? If they do, their risk of progression is going to be higher. And then finally, I wanna know their current K-max or their current steepest keratometry value. Patients who have farther progressed disease, they have a steeper cornea, have been shown in some studies to progress faster. And so those are the three things I wanna know. And that's really going to dictate my follow-up and what I believe the urgency is to get this cornea stabilized. So keratometry uh, measures the cornea, the, the shape of the cornea for the people that are watching. So what are some of the keys that you would say, okay, this person has progressed. How many units, what we use as diopters, would you consider progression? And what's the time frame? Is it a year? Is it six months? Is it two years? Yes. So keratometry, as you said, measures the curvature of the cornea. Let's give first kind of a reference number. So average is 43 to 43 and a half. What's defined as progressive keratoconus is a patient who has over one diopter of steepening in one year. And so if we have a steep cornea of 46, we see that patient back a year later, it's 47 or 47 and a half. This would be by many insurance companies what defines progression. I also think it's important if you are seeing this patient for the first time, what's normal versus abnormal. Almost always a steep keratometry value of 50 or more is going to be abnormal. There's some type of corneal pathology there that would make me dive deeper. And how about for astigmatism? Yeah, great question. So astigmatism, you know, in optometry, we are masters of the four opter. We spend so much time doing force choice, which is better one or two, but analyzing those numbers can be so important. And so if I'm refracting a patient and I'm getting three and a half, four diopters of manifest astigmatism in their glasses prescription, this is going to be a red flag for me and going to warrant getting some type of topography or tomography, an elevation map of that cornea. There's three big studies, at least that I can think of on the, the top of my head that have shown patients, once they get to that two and a half to three diopters of glasses astigmatism, their risk for keratoconus or having keratoconus goes way up. And so again, I think we're just trying to make this cookbook of red flags so that if you don't have all of these fancy diagnostics in your practice, you can say, okay, there's a, a one red flag or two red flags here. And this is maybe a patient that I need to get some scans on. Now we look at astigmatism as uh, a normal type of astigmatism with the rule we call it. Then there's against the rule and then there's oblique astigmatism. Yes. If we see significant uh, amount of against the rule astigmatism in a young person. It, would you consider that a red flag? Yes, I would. Yep. So our normal kind of population, the corneal astigmatism starts when we're in our younger years of being with the rule astigmatism. And then as we get older, shifts to more against the rule astigmatism. And so if I see a young patient with a high amount of against the rule astigmatism 
or oblique astigmatism, meaning it's not on the vertical or the horizontal axis, but it's kind of in between at one of the diagonals, that's going to be red flags for me. And that's again, shown in studies to be correlating to higher risk of keratoconus. Explain astigmatism. Yeah, I think of astigmatism as important to first note two anatomical parts of the eye have astigmatism, the cornea and the lens. For our focus on keratoconus, we're really just focusing on corneal astigmatism. But when we do a glasses prescription, remember if a patient hasn't had cataract surgery, they have both corneal and lenticular astigmatism. And so the cornea could actually have more astigmatism than you're measuring in a pair of glasses. But for corneal astigmatism, what I tell patients is your cornea has two curves that bend or focus light. And so rather than your cornea being a perfect sphere, like a basketball, it's more shaped like a football. There's two curvatures and we can correct that with a pair of glasses. So rather than having one power across the whole lens, it's kind of like a plus sign or an X and we correct two meridians. Talk about the symptoms that a patient would have of keratoconus. Yeah, I keep going back to glaucoma, but they have some similar characteristics. In a patient with keratoconus, when we're in the early stages of the disease, patients really might not have much for symptoms at all. Some of the early symptoms would maybe be a patient just feels like something is wrong with their vision. We have all these words like blur and glare and halos and starbursts. Oftentimes in the exam room with a patient, they'll just tell me something just seems off. Another maybe sign and symptom is a patient who just can't find a comfortable glasses prescription. And so you've seen patients for a year after year, and all of a sudden they just are coming back for glasses redos or remakes. They're just not happy with the quality of their vision. Some of the big buzzwords are going to be glare, halos, starburst, trouble driving at night. Another big one for me is a patient who wears toric or astigmatism correcting soft contact lenses. They're maybe just intolerant to those. They're starting to get more kind of blur on blink because they're getting a little rotation as this corneal shape continues to warp or bulge. But patients aren't going to have pain. They're not going to come see you with keratoconus and say, gosh, I'm having all this pain and light sensitivity. It might be keratoconus. And so we as doctors really have to use our tools and be able to catch those red flags. And how about halos or ghosting? Yeah, I think those are two of the, the symptoms patients are going to have. Patients will sometimes say they have kind of a tail or a secondary image on the letters if they're reading on the chart or if they're looking out at a street sign, it kind of has tails on the end of the letters. That's another big one for me. I think that a lot of times that when we certainly have a young person and we can't correct their vision to 2020, we get very suspicious of keratoconus and Luckily, we have great technology to be able to help us, you know, looking at the keratometry readings and other types of advanced technologies that we're going to talk about. But I, I just want to make it, I make an important point that I had somebody the other day who had some symptoms similar to this, and it turned out they had something completely different. They had, it was a young person in the, about 18 years old who had cone dystrophy. Oh, sure. So not everybody who has poor vision at a young age has keratoconus. It could be many other things. Yeah, so great. I just want to make that point. Uh, so let's talk about some of the, di the diagnostic equipment that we use uh, to help in the diagnosis. Let's start off with topography. What is topography? What does it tell us? Yeah. 
I think of topography as an elevation map of the cornea. So similar to a topographic land map where you're looking at kind of elevations, hills and valleys, similar idea with a corneal topographer. It's measuring the corneal shape, the corneal symmetry, and then the two curvatures. So K1 and K2 are two keratometry values. We said that's the curvature of the cornea. And then if we look at the difference of those two values, K1 and K2 or keratometry one and two, that's gonna tell us our corneal astigmatism. Most commonly, but not always, a corneal topographer will be placido disc technology, which is these rings of light that are stacked upon each other. We shine those rings of light onto our patient's cornea. And then the image that's reflected back and the spacing of those rings is how we analyze and look at the corneal curvature or the corneal elevation and shape. And does that tell us about K-Max? Yeah, K-Max is a definition that is commonly used by more of a Scheinflug camera or a tomography. But I think you can use K-Max a little bit more liberally and say, the steepest measurement that I have in my practice, whether that be a manual keratometer, my auto keratometer, my topography, the steepest value that I'm able to measure in my practice could be used as the K-Max. And the reason I think that's an important point is as we later talk more about a change in K-Max of greater than one diopter in a year is what's defined as progression, K-Max doesn't have to just be off one device. It can be off many of our different in-clinic technologies. Let's talk about tomography, which you mentioned before. One of the famous ones is called the Pentacam. Mm -hmm. Tell us the advantages of that. And I think a lot of people out there, even some doctors, find it confusing what, what the term posterior float means. Yes. So a, a corneal topography measures the anterior elevation and shape of the cornea. A corneal tomography, T-O-M-O, -O, is a Scheinflug camera most commonly. It's a slit camera and it takes these images in 360 degrees, kind of like almost CT scans, and then adds them up to tell us the corneal shape. So a corneal tomography tells us about the anterior corneal shape or what we call the sagittal curve, the axial curvature map are some different names for that. But then it also gives us pachymetry. So corneal thickness is termed pachymetry averages, as we said earlier, 545 to 550 microns, but a tomography will map out the different pachymetry values across the cornea, which can be really indicative or helpful in keratoconus. And then it gives us an anterior and a posterior float. And so what it does is it takes our patient's anterior cornea and then overlays a best fit sphere or a very normal corneal shape and then tells us the deviation from normal. It does that on the front side. And then the posterior float is analogous to that. It tells us our patient's posterior corneal shape and then overlays a best fit sphere or what normal would be and tells us the deviation. The reason that that's important is because we can have some mimickers of keratoconus if we're only looking at a corneal topography. If we're only looking at the anterior corneal shape, we have to further be detectives and saying, could this be dry eye? Could this be epithelial basement membrane dystrophy that's making the anterior corneal shape look abnormal? But if we can add in the pachymetry map and we can add in the posterior float, which in keratoconus patients will sometimes and oftentimes be the first thing that bulges or pooches forward, we can see that's irregular on the posterior cornea. Now we have just another piece to that puzzle. And they call it float because it's floating over what's normal. Correct. 
And where did the, the word Scheinflum, the Dr. Scheinflum, where does that come from? That is a question that I don't know the answer to. I don't know if it was Dr. Scheinflug who developed this technology, and that's why it's become a, a Scheinflug camera since then. One thing with Scheinflug technologies is they're able to take images of a non-planar surface and get a higher quality. And so if you think of a non-flat surface like the cornea, this is what this type of camera or device is really aiming to do. And they call it a pentacam because it does five different technologies. Correct. Yep, that's correct as well. So Pentacam is really a name brand, uh, kind of like Nike or Adidas. It's made by the company Oculus. So an autorefractor, most optometrists have an autorefractor. How can that help us with the diagnosis? Yeah, an autorefractor is going to give us our first shot at looking at that patient's prescription. And so as we take that prescription from the autorefractor, we put it in our foropter, just again, analyzing the numbers. And so if you see boy, this is a patient with four diopters of cylinder on the autorefract. That's probably a red flag for me. If you take that autorefractor and you're getting an error message, an autorefractor doesn't do a great job of measuring a non-planar or a non-normal shaped cornea. And so if we have this cone, the autorefractor really can't get a good image on that patient and it'll give us an error message. And so an error message on autorefractor is another big key to that corneal shape being abnormal. What other conditions would give an error message in a uh, autorefractor? A patient who is post-corneal transplant, so where the anterior corneal shape, like a penetrating keratoplasty or a deep anterior lamellar keratoplasty, when a patient has a full thickness or anterior corneal graft, that can give you an error message. A patient with dry eye can sometimes give an error message. Sometimes you can put an artificial tear and get that error message to go away. Um, basement membrane dystrophy or anterior corneal pathology would be another one. How about cataracts or a very tiny pupil? Yeah, cataracts really shouldn't give us an error message on an autorefractor. We should still be able to get that measurement, at least of the, the keratometry values and the corneal shape in the beginning. Now, of course, a really, really dense cataract, if we can't get the beam of light through the eye to give us that reflection back, then you may get an error message, but it's really going to be in a mild to moderate cataract, we should still be able to get an autorefractor. And how, how about pachymetry, uh, the thickness of the cornea? How does that help us? Yeah, thickness of the cornea is going to be important because one of the hallmarks of keratoconus is that the corneal thickness thins over time. The corneal tissue thins down over time. And so being able to measure this is really important. With pachymetry, it's sometimes harder to make kind of the initial diagnosis because some patients are just born with thinner or thicker corneas and that can be normal. But in general, in a patient with keratoconus or refractive surgery ectasia, the corneal thickness, the pachymetry is going to thin over time. If you have some way to map the corneal thickness, we talked about the Pentacam having this pachymetry map. Most commonly, it's important to remember that a normal anatomic cornea is going to have the thinnest corneal pachymetry in the very center, and then it thickens as the pachymetry goes out into the periphery. And so if we have a patient who has a very thin corneal pachymetry, but it's located at the bottom of the cornea or inferior temporal or inferior nasal, that can be a red flag as well and could be enough for me to say, hey, we got we to gotta add this puzzle up. We do this, and not all doctors do it anymore, but there's a technique that we use called retinoscopy. 
-hmm. what, do, what is the doctor going to see on the retinoscopy when they're actually shining a light in the patient's eye to be able to see what the prescription is? Yeah, like you or, or many of our colleagues in optometry school, this was the one of the tests and procedures that I really tried to get really, really good at. And I took a lot of pride in being able to do great retinoscopy. And, and maybe I'm not as good as I should be now. But retinoscopy, moving that slit beam of light across the pupil, grading the reflex that we get back, most commonly initially is used to get an objective starting kind of refraction for a patient. But some of our colleagues are super talented at this and really can dial in the prescription with retinoscopy maybe better than we can with forced choice. But in a patient with keratoconus, you're going to get a scissoring reflex, which is really pathognomonic, highly sensitive and specific for diagnosing keratoconus, where rather than having kind of a single beam, it's almost a beam that almost like a scissor chopping will have kind of a, a lower part or an upper part that's together, but then we'll have two kind of tails that go like this back and forth across. And there's some great YouTube videos that you can look up on this as well. Retinoscopy is helpful in keratoconus because it doesn't require our patient to give any responses. So maybe a patient with intellectual delays, a, patient, a pediatric patient, these are patients who you may make the diagnosis of keratoconus off retinoscopy. Before we talked about keratometry and topography, if you have a keratometry reading of a number of 50 or above, is that pathognomonic necessarily of keratoconus? I don't think you can say that that's definitely going to be keratoconus. It could be some other ectatic corneal condition. It could be one of our corneal degenerations where we're getting kind of an abnormal measurement there. It could be a patient who's post-transplantation. Uh, and so we can't only take off the, the auto K and say 50 is a patient with keratoconus. It could be some other disease. If it is a patient who hasn't had any other type of corneal surgeries and the rest of the puzzle pieces fit up, they have high amounts of refractive cylinder and, and you don't have a topography or tomography, that's a patient that I would get a baseline scan on. And that's a question that people watching this might want to ask their doctor what that number is. Mm -hmm. Let's talk, we use a microscope in our office, eye doctors called a slit lamp or a bio mi microscope. What are some of the findings that we'll find uh, when, we, when we're using that microscope with patients that have keratoconus? Keratoconus, like other conditions, is you have to have a trained eye. You have to really be looking for specific findings or you can brush over them very, very quickly. And so for me, when I'm using the slit lamp and looking for keratoconus, I like to have a thinner beam. So more like an optic section, if you're familiar with that term for many of our listeners, moving that optic section across, just like if you had a, detail, a detailed two-dimensional picture, you can start to see the corneal beam almost start to bow. Another one is going to be small little stress lines or stress cracks in the cornea, some striae or void striae in this cornea because it's just getting stretched or, or curved, we can see some scarring in patients. So a patient who has advanced keratoconus, you can see more scarring in their cornea. You can see pigment deposition kind of around the cone. And so some patients will have almost a, a finding of pigment around the cone. It's pigment in really the, the epithelium and the anterior stroma. You can put in some fluorescein and maybe change to a cobalt blue filter and that will help for some of these patients and then finally, a, a finding called corneal hydrops, where we get a break in the posterior cornea. You get a rush of fluid into the cornea. The cornea swells up. This becomes very painful for our patients. And when hydrops are acute, you see this kind of white circle 
on the cornea, over time that fluid will detergest or, or be thinned out, but it's going to leave behind a big resultant scar. I think an important point for eye care providers, so optometrists and ophthalmologists is, if we're diagnosing keratoconus at the slit lamp, we're past many of the initial findings or, or the mild form of this disease. And we want to try to avoid somebody from getting high drops. And that's one of the reasons why uh, cross-linking now that we have at our disposal could be so useful. Exactly. Yep. Totally agree. You know, there's something called the Munson sign. Uh, if you could explain what that is. Yeah. Munson sign I've maybe only seen once or twice. And I think we have uh, a technologies that can maybe help us more than this. But if a patient has keratoconus, Munson sign, if they look down, their lower eyelid will pooch out. And you have to have a, a pretty advanced cone to see this, but you can see that the lower eyelid almost come in a coning shape. And what's going back to high drops, once somebody has high drops, what's the natural course of the disease at that point? And what should be done to treat those that's, typic that's typically done? Yeah, high drops, once a patient has high drops, we're going to be in more of the more difficult rehabilitation forms of, of keratoconus from a vision standpoint. And so as we talked about high drops, it's this break in the posterior cornea. Over time, that break fills in, but when it's active or acute, the cornea becomes very swollen. It's painful for our patients. And so patients will often come in with a, a whole bunch of corneal edema. They're light sensitive. For the initial treatment, I'll often cycloplege the eye just to help with patient's comfort. I'll put them on some steroid to try to start to thin down that cornea. We can use some of our topical hyperosmotics as well, but this is all in the medical therapy or, or treatment of high drops, really just trying to make our patient more comfortable, but it's not going to be something that changes overnight. Something that we've done a few times in our practice with variable results or successes is actually putting an air bubble inside the eye and then having the patient position almost like an endothelial keratoplasty and trying to get that air bubble to kind of push the corneal tissue on the posterior cornea back together to get it to thin down sooner. I think the end result in almost all patients with high drops is going to be the same though, and that's that they have now this corneal scar. If this corneal scar secondary to high drop sits over the pupil, we have a much more difficult scenario to rehabilitate the vision. And so most patients now we're going to have off the table for glasses, soft contact lenses. Some of our specialty contact lenses can still work for these patients, but it may be a patient that's ultimately going to some type of corneal transplantation. What's your biggest concern of diagnosing keratoconus at the slit lamp or the biomicroscope? Yeah. My biggest concern of diagnosing at the slit lamp is we're past losing uncorrected visual acuity. And in some patients, especially if we have scarring, if we've post high drops, we've now lost best corrected visual acuity. And it's fairly irreversible in these patients. And so if we're not getting to the disease until we're in the moderate to advanced stages, we've lost many of the tools in our toolbox to help rehabilitate or correct their vision. Let's talk about the OCT. Uh, many doctors have OCT in their practice and, and doctors love using OCT. How could that be helpful? Yeah, I think of using OCT and there's some interesting survey data that says more optometrists have an OCT in their practice for mostly the posterior segment than do have a corneal topographer. And so if you have an OCT in your practice, most commonly optometrists are using this to look at the retina, the macula, the optic nerve. Some of these have just an add-on 
module or add-on technology piece of equipment to look at the anterior segment, to look at the cornea. And so we can get valuable data from an anterior segment OCT. It can look at a, a cross-section of the cornea. So again, looking at kind of how much bending there is in the cornea, you can loosely look at this, probably not for definitive diagnosis, but you can look at how thick the cornea is off this as well. They'll often have some calipers so you can measure corneal thickness off this. Some of our anterior segment OCTs are now giving a pachymetry map as well. And then I think some of our anterior segment OCTs finally are partnering uh, with different technologies to get epithelial thickness as well. And so there's variable amounts of information that you can get from an anterior segment OCT specifically for the cornea, but having that cross-sectional view of the corneal shape is a good place to start. And some of them have add-on technologies like pachymetry and epithelial mapping. Dan Reinstein did some work on looking at the epithelial thickness as a diagnostic for keratoconus. What's your feeling about using it, you know, that donut shape uh, pattern? Yeah, so epithelial mapping, I'll back up just for a second, is mapping just the anterior 50 microns of cornea. So mapping just the very anterior layer of the cornea. And there's some good data from Dan Reinstein. There's others who have done this as well that have said the epithelium is going to thin in a patient with keratoconus over the area of total corneal thinning. So where the pachymetry is the thickness, the epithelium will often be the thinnest. The epithelium will be the thinnest in the area where we have anterior elevation or the cone. And then finally, the epithelium will be thinnest over the area of the posterior corneal change or the posterior float kind of bulging forward. And so all of those hopefully add up. I don't think in my opinion, we're at the spot where epithelial mapping alone is a definitive diagnosis for keratoconus for me, but it can be really helpful in the patient where I'm trying to diagnose maybe pre-topographic keratoconus. So even before we see anterior elevation changes, we could see that epithelium thinning. And that would be a, an, another piece to that puzzle or another helpful clue that this is a patient with keratoconus. And so I think it's a, a technology that has potential to be able to diagnose keratoconus even earlier in that patient's life cycle. Another technology that a lot of doctors have in their office that patients don't realize is aberometry. What is aberometry and how can that help us? Yeah, so we're, we've kind of went down what I would consider the list of advanced diagnostic technologies once we got to topography and tomography talking about corneal biomechanics, epithelial mapping, anterior segment OCT. I think these are all really nice technologies. And I think that having all of them can be kind of building the case for these patients. Looking at higher order aberrations or wavefront aberrometry, I think is another tool. It's a, a for me, a tiebreaker tool. It's not a standalone device, but there's some studies that have shown that for the diagnosis of keratoconus, these patients will most commonly have a higher total amount of higher order aberrations. So the RMS error or root mean square error is going to be higher in keratoconic patients, as well as vertical coma. Coma is one of the Zernike polynomials or what we would call a higher order aberration. And patients with keratoconus will most commonly exhibit a higher amount of vertical coma. We talked about the causes of keratoconus a little bit and you talked about eye rubbing. Talk about genetics. Is there a genetic predisposition? There's a company now that does genetic testing. What do you think the validity of it is? Yeah, I think it's very good. I think my opinion has changed as I've studied this more. And so if you use some of the, the studies, it's kind of all over 
on the genetic risk of keratoconus. I will very commonly quote the CLEC study, the Collaborative Longitudinal Evaluation of Keratoconus study, which found the risk at about 13%. And so they looked at you know, a lot of patients, over 1,200 patients with keratoconus, and they found that there wasn't a super strong genetic correlation for these patients. About one in 10 had a positive family history. There's some other studies though that have shown that a patient with a first degree family member, so mom, dad, brother, sister, son, or daughter who have keratoconus have at least a five times increased risk. They found a prevalence above 3% if patients had a positive family history of keratoconus with that primary family member, which you know is much higher than our one in 2000. And so I, I do think there's a genetic component and I think we're still learning and understanding how much genetics play a role in keratoconus, but I do think that it's something that doctors should be aware of. Avelino is a, a company that now has an in-office cheek swab called Avagen, which gives 70, you know, a lot of genes looking at the risk of keratoconus and kind of gives us almost like an OCT printout where it says, green is good, yellow means slow down, red means stops, looks at a patient's genetic risk for keratoconus. And while I don't think this will become a standalone diagnostic where we do a, a genetic test, we do Avagen to look at a patient's genetic profile for keratoconus, I do think it can be really helpful when we're trying to kind of look at a, a family and their risk of keratoconus. And so if I'm seeing maybe a 15-year-old with keratoconus and their 12-year-old sister is in the exam room with us, that's a patient that maybe warrants getting this on also a patient who has some red flags and we just want to further know their risk. This is, again, I, I keep going back to a puzzle, but another puzzle piece that can hopefully add to our confidence in saying, yes, this is a patient with keratoconus or no, this is maybe not. And so I think this is emerging. I think it's going to be fun to see how genetic testing can further help us add confidence when we're talking about keratoconus for our patients. Do you think there's an inflammatory component to keratoconus or just a secondary inflammatory component? Yeah, great and controversial question. I think there's been a lot of the bigger kind of landmark keratoconus studies that have said this is a non-inflammatory condition. But I think you could make the case that one of the things that aggressive eye rubbing or maybe even acute eye rubbing where someone has just a rubbing attack and almost has this kind of brought on very quick topographic change that looks like keratoconus probably has some inflammatory mechanism to it as well. Patients with allergic conjunctivitis who are really rubbing their eyes a lot definitely have some inflammation. And so I don't think that it would be for me correct to say you can't treat some inflammation to try to calm down the eye rubbing, but I don't think at its kind of root level keratoconus is an inflammatory condition. Fitting multifocal contact lenses presents a big opportunity to meet patient needs while growing your practice. Alcon is your partner, not only with our innovative portfolio, but through e-learning. Learn to enhance your multifocal strategy today with the Alcon Experience Academy. Since I bought Safe For You, my dad makes me clean his boat. It's natural y es un buen producto. Every time I go back to school, my mom always makes sure that I have my Safe For You products. I bring extra and my roommates certainly don't mind. It's a good thing I had safe for you to clean up after this little guy. When my hands get dry, I like to wash them with safe for you. And most importantly, the reason why I buy safe for you 
because it's safe for me and you.